quick slurp of coffee. This is God's word. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no liar is of the truth. <coughs> who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. We've been looking over the last few weeks through this letter that we've just read a section of here from the Apostle John to a group of churches in and around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, we've tried to understand it as, as a study in the Christian understanding of love. That's why the series is called Behold What Love. And the point is that in order to know and receive and experience love, We as a church have to know, and this is what John is getting at, we have to know with absolute certainty the God who is love as he reveals himself through his son. And so if that knowledge of God is somehow threatened or attacked or removed, (coughs) then our understanding of love and our experience of love, of true love, is skewed or becomes imbalanced. Or arguably, from a Christian perspective, We cannot understand love if we can't understand God. And so this is the sort of the big theme, if you like, of what John is is getting across, one of many things he's getting across in this entire letter. Um, And so I don't know if you picked it up as we went through, but um, John in this section is writing to the churches uh, to highlight a specific threat that they are currently experiencing. And so we see in this letter, or sorry, in this section, uh, he, he talked about, first of all, the threat of deceivers. But then, in order to sort of encourage and affirm, he talks about the security of believers. All right, so the threat of deceivers, the security of believers, um, and then a sort of, from our perspective anyway, a few practical uh, moves that we have to make in order to prepare ourselves against this threat. So what is this threat, first of all, this threat of deceivers that John is talking about? <clears throat> Um, because, as I said, it's a threat to the church's knowledge of God and therefore their experience of love. And he calls this threat, or these people who threaten the church, antichrists. Look down at verse 18. He says, uh, children, that's his, that's his term to, dis, you know, to address the church. He said, it is, this, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, the antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Antichrist simply means someone or something that is against Christ, anti-Christ. Um, 
the Antichrist <clears throat> is a spiritual force that aims to destroy the church. Standing behind that is Satan himself. But it seems to be, from personal experience and from what, what the Bible teaches us as well, that <clears throat> various human faces act on behalf of the Antichrist. And they are sort of Antichrists. The, the foot soldiers, if you like. And so that seems to be what's going on in the church here that John is writing to, or the churches that John is writing to. There are people within the church or among the church who are acting against Christ and his church. And we know that they're not just misbehaving believers or people who haven't been taught well, because in verse 26, not only does he call them antichrists, but he says, these people are trying to deceive you. So it's not like they're just wrong and mistaken. They are actively trying to deceive the believers about Jesus. So they are actively working against the church. <clears throat> they have adopted, as we'll see in a few moments, a different gospel. It's interesting to see, just at, this, at the outset, how the church is attacked in, in this particular scenario. And not many others as well in the New Testament. Most often, the threat to the church comes from within, not from the forces outside. Persecution, losing a job, losing a life, physical harm, all that stuff. But the thing that seems to occupy the mind and the writings of the New Testament writers is the threat that comes from within. And this is John's interpretation, his understanding <clears throat> of that threat. And it's attacked at the level of your belief. That's where they do their most damage. And it seems to be this group of people were at one stage part of the community. They were sort of sitting in the chairs next to you, <coughs> so to speak. But eventually, it says in verse 19, they left, they showed their true colours, and away they went. And so we have this group called Antichrists, and they were masquerading as believers. They at one point gave uh, assent to Christian teaching, they sort of agreed with it sort of rested in their minds at some level or other, but eventually they came to reject it. Not only that, they manipulated and altered the Christian doctrine, the Christian teaching, and gave it an alternate interpretation. How do we know that? We'll look down at verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He goes on, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So it seems to be that these Antichrists, this group of people who looked and sounded Christian, within the church, were denying the core teachings or the core doctrines of Jesus and who he is. That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, which means Christ, the chosen one. That he is the Father, sorry, he is the Son of God the Father. And they were denying that. No doubt they were denying it in a very sophisticated way. If someone came in just now and took over the preaching and said, you know what, There's, Jesus is not the Son of God, he's not the, that's pretty obvious. And probably most of us would say, hang on, this is not right. But no doubt these, 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 these antichrists were doing it in a very sophisticated way that sounded plausible, <coughs> compelling. Jesus isn't really God. He's just a man. He's a great man, but he's a, just a man. God didn't need to become a human being in order to, to love us and save us. That's probably the kind of thing that they would be saying. We don't know for sure. But this was happening among the church. And it started off with the church. And they embraced this, this group of teachers anyway. They embraced this heretical doctrine. Heresy, by the way, is often a word that gets 
thrown around by Christians and a bit of a joke, really. Ah, you, you heretic. And, um, and yet, if we really understood that heresy is, is deadly <coughs> and it's alive, then we probably wouldn't use it in such a way. Just want to be clear here, by the way, at the outset, that when we talk about antichrists and those who deny God the Father and deny uh, God the Son, what we're not talking about is, is outsiders. We're not talking about unbelievers or those who are learning the Christian faith or, or people who are seeking you know, to learn more of the gospel. We're not talking about those kind of people. We are talking about those who know, the, well, they think they know that Jesus is not God and they are trying to t- turn others away. That's the kind of people that we're talking about. <clears throat> we often don't like to think of this third category in our churches. We like to think of ourselves as believers and we like to think of other people as unbelievers. We don't often like to think of a third category, those who appear to be believers and yet are trying to deceive the church. And yet, that's what we have here in Scripture. And so, let's just try and uh, connect the dots (coughs) a little bit with what we've been learning so far in the letter of uh, 1 John. (coughs) These are the same people, these antichrists, who claim they can know God, but yet they fail to prove it through the way they live their lives. These are the same people who claim they have fellowship with the divine, And yet they walk in darkness. They think they have the Father, but John shows us in verse 23, they do not have the Father. And so this group of antichrists modify the original message by presenting new truths, fresh insights, they may say. This is how, by the way, it presents in every generation. Not just back in 80 or 90 AD, but today as well in 2017. Because antichrists and people who uh, are the human face of the antichrist are still with us and still present and still working every generation by altering the gospel message, that ancient gospel message, denying the deity of Jesus, denying that he is God. I'm not talking, by the way, about other religions, Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. We're talking about those who try and sound and look Christian. Let's start with a, a modern example anyway, and I'm not just picking these, this group to bash them by any means, but just to show you roughly what we mean. Uh, <clears throat> the modern denial that Jesus is God in a Christian form is seen in the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they teach that because of a new uh, revelation that a man um, a couple of hundred years ago, an American man, uh, received um, that sort of comes on top of the Bible and therefore replaces the Bible, Um, he believes and they they believe that Jesus was not God that he was a good man an exalted man um, but he was certainly not God and yet that's sort of wrapped up in in a a Christian form and they they have churches and use Christian language but if anything the danger that faces us today as Foundation Church and many other churches like us is not from other folks who've left and, 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 and do their own thing over there The danger for us is what happens within the evangelical church. And and perhaps the most pervasive form of this sort of danger that we see among our churches are the kind of churches and the kind of Christians that take Jesus as their moral example. Jesus who who shows us how to live a good and fulfilled life. The Jesus who helps us to uh, work out our relationships, our marriages, who, who leads us towards social justice. The Jesus who is all about peace and love. 
And yet such churches and, and Christians may barely recognize and mention the fact that he is divine, that he is the son of God, that he died on a cross and, and died a, a bloody death. But you can see the same effect, can't you? <coughs> when we start denying these core truths of the Christian faith, it leads us step by step away from God rather than closer to him. <coughs> and the problem that we face today as the problem was faced back in the day of the Apostle John, is that this stuff works. <coughs> People can still be deceived today by what looks and sounds and feels Christian. Even sincere Christians can be entangled by nonsense teaching, heretical teaching, wrapped up in Christian words. Popular books, popular speakers, popular conferences, gnawing away at the core doctrines. But as John says in verse 19, they left us because they were not us. They were never us. They left so that it might become plain to the rest of the world that what they're teaching <coughs> and who they are, they're not us. You cannot have darkness mixing with light. You cannot have oil mixing with water, truth with error. They can't exist in the same church. Ultimately, one side will win. One side will be forced out. And we hope and pray that in a, in a healthy church, which is what we're aspiring to become more and more at Foundation Church, that we would always be on guard against the threat of deceivers. So John <clears throat> identifies and calls out these antichrists. They wouldn't have called themselves that, by the way, but he writes in such a way to show who they are. But he writes not primarily to point these people out, although he has to. <coughs> he writes to his dear children, the churches and the people in the churches that he loves and, and cares for and, 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 and considers himself to be their spiritual father. And so he uses that term again, children. And he writes to encourage them and to assure them that even though this is going on in their church, they can be secure. So he moves on to the security of believers. And he points um, in this passage to two sources of their security, two, two, two reasons that they can be secure and be, be encouraged and strengthened. You know, two sort of anchors they can hold on to, if you like. <coughs> so the first source of their security, the, the believers in the church, we see in verse 20. But you, he says, turning to the church, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You've been anointed, he says to the church, by the Holy One. In the Gospel of John, not the letter, but the Gospel of John, Jesus is known not only as the Holy One, but he promises to send the Holy Spirit to his people when Jesus returns to the Father. And we see that in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out and anointed the church. And so when John says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. He's saying you have received the Holy Spirit from the hand of Jesus himself. He's, he's poured it out upon you. And what's the effect of this, this anointing? He says that in the second half of verse 20. You all have knowledge. Those of you who have received the anointing, you all have knowledge. <coughs> you know the truth, he says in verse 21. There is no lie of the truth. See, the Antichrist's aim to deceive to distract, to cast doubt among the people. 
But you, says John, you have been protected by your anointing. You have been marked by your anointing. You've been anointed by the Spirit himself. By the way, when we say anointing, it's sort of drawing on Old Testament language. But it's this idea that someone is anointed or something is set apart for use by God. Sometimes using oil as a sort of, uh, to communicate that. Something that's anointed is set apart for use by God. And he's saying here, you have been set apart for use by God to the church. And in verse 27, this anointing teaches you about everything. It is true. There is no need for anyone to teach you. <coughs> so what he's saying to the believer is this. The Holy Spirit has implanted within you a deep knowledge that Jesus is God and Christ. And notice this. It's not just that the, the, the knowledge has been given to you or sprinkled upon you by the Holy Spirit. He takes it further. He says the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He abides in you, in verse 27. That is a way of saying he remains within you. He lives within you. And it is this Holy Spirit who continually testifies and teaches and convicts you of the truth. That's why he goes on to say, you have no need that anyone should teach you. John is not saying <clears throat> to the church that because you have the Holy Spirit, you know all there is to know. He's not saying that you know all the there is to know about systematic theology and biblical theology and historic theology and Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and linguistics. You know all about the intertestamental literature. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you don't need faithful Bible teaching every day of your lives. But what he is saying is this. On this very important fundamental truth about Jesus you don't need any new information from these so-called antichrists, these so-called teachers. You don't need any more information than what you already know. <coughs> no subtraction, no addition, no deviation. You know it. You know that Jesus is Christ and God and you have been anointed by the Spirit. And the same, by the way, folks, applies to us today. If you are a true believer in Jesus, you have been anointed by the Spirit. In fact, flip it around. The reason you're a believer in Jesus is because you've been anointed by the Spirit. And this, <coughs> for the church, is a great source of security. Don't listen to what the false teachers are trying to show you. You have the Spirit. You know Jesus is God. And that's because of the Holy Spirit living in you, abiding, taking up residence. But then there's a second source of security that John wants to give to his sort of uh, discouraged and, and fearful church. And the second source is this, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. <coughs> Let what you heard at the beginning abide in you. You see this truth that Jesus is God and Jesus is the Christ, this truth didn't <coughs> just arrive in a vacuum. It didn't just mystically appear in their hearts as they were sitting around a campfire having a good sing-song and a collective religious experience suddenly occurred. No, the reason why they have this truth is because they heard it when someone told them the gospel. Do you remember at the beginning of the letter how John begins? In verse 1 to 4. He says, That which we have heard 
that which we have seen, that which we have looked upon with our eyes, touched with our hands, that has been made manifest to us. And that, that person, we testify and we proclaim to you. He's the word of life. And we're telling you this so that you may have fellowship with God. This is the true apostolic gospel message of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the one who lived and was crucified and who rose and ascended. <coughs> Him we saw and touched and spoke to and knew and walked with and laughed with and cried with. And he died and came for us and for our sins as we were just confessing in the Nicene Creed. And John is saying to the church, you heard this message and you believed in it. This old gospel message that dates right back to the very moment that it was happening in real life. And he's saying, let this, let this that you've heard, this message, abide and live and dwell in you. Not the teaching of the antichrists, the new stuff. Let this dwell in you. And so we have those two sources of security <coughs> for the believer. We have the Holy Spirit who lives in his people. And we have the word of God, that gospel message that lives in his people, <coughs> if you like. Both abide in the true believer. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is because the word abides in you and it's because the spirit abides in you. You've re received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we could think of it like this. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> takes the gospel message, that stuff that is, is, is held out, that is explained, that is proclaimed to you through the preaching and through talking and through reading, that, that external word the Holy Spirit takes and he changes it from an external word which is out there and he puts it and, and, and packs it down into our minds, pardon me, and into our hearts. That's what he does and he continues to do that because he abides, he lives within us and so he continues to testify and remind us that what we've heard and what we're hearing is true. And so he says in verse 24 and verse 27, both the word and the spirit abide in the believer. They don't abide in the deceiver. They were never there in the first place. <coughs> but there's more. Can you see what happens when the word and the spirit abide in you and I? Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, listen, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Just let those words sink in for a few moments. If what you heard at the beginning, that gospel message, if that sinks into your heart and your mind by the work of the Holy Spirit, then you abide in the Father and the Son. This is almost impossible to get your head around what John is actually saying here. He's saying when you believe the gospel, Holy Spirit and the word live in you and you subsequently therefore live in God the Father and God the Son. You take up residence in God as he takes up residence in you. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's a profound mystery. It is almost inexpressible, and yet 
it produces a fundamental change. It ushers in great power. Sometimes as Christians, we think of ourselves as, as, as distinct <coughs> and remote from God. God is over there, and, and God's done something to us, and yet we're still walking around and sort of almost, even for Christians, almost detached. But yet jo- John is saying here that it couldn't be further from the truth. We are actually in God and in the Son. And it's a profound mystery. That's why the Bible writers use so many different terms to communicate to us the same thing. We've already seen that John likes the term abiding, the term born again, the term eternal life, all communicating something of what it means to be in God. The Apostle Paul, who writes in a very different style, uses the the language of union with Christ, of conversion, of reconciliation. (coughs) The Apostle Peter talks about partaking of the divine nature. All of them are terms to explain something of this great blessing and mystery that every Christian, every believer in Jesus has, that you are in God and in the Son right now because of the Spirit and the Word in you. I don't know if this is the first time you've heard this kind of thing. I promise you I'm not making it up. It is right there. But just ask yourself for a moment, what what kind of security does that give you? Knowing that you are right now, somehow, by the work of Christ, in Christ, in the Father. (coughs) What safety does that give your life? Put it like this, what can ultimately harm us when we are in the Father and in the Son? What circumstances in your life can ultimately overcome you when you are in the Father and in the Son? What part of your life can you withhold from God when you are in the Father and in the Son? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Behold what love. See, for the believer, it is more than just knowing a set of truths about God. We can all stand and read the Nicene Creed. But the difference between a believer and someone who is self-deceived is that the believer not only knows God, but knows he or she knows God. Or in other words, it is not just a mental assent to a set of truths. The believer receives those truths and their heart is set on fire. For believers in Jesus, the gospel isn't just true, it is beautiful. It is, it is wonderful. So how about you? <clears throat> this evening as you sit and listen to this stuff, possibly for the first time. Do you know about Jesus? But in honesty, the gospel message hasn't actually done much inside of you. Maybe you have gone along with it, perhaps for many years, but you have never received the gospel message, the word. It has never taken up residence inside you. For you, it's been an external experience. You've never received the word internally. We've thought about... (coughs) the threat of deceivers among the church and how that is still a contemporary issue that we must be on guard against. But then we've just been thinking about the security of believers, both the Word and the Spirit 
take up residence in every one of us who believe. So finally, we're going to try and put some practical language around this. <coughs> There's no point in pointing out the threat unless we can do something about it. So how can we as a church, <coughs> how can you as an individual believer, prepare yourself, be on guard, or maybe in a positive way, how can we as a church proactively work towards becoming more and more healthy that we may prevent this kind of attack? Well, the answer is not to be found in sitting back and doing nothing. Let go and let God. Neither is the answer to be found in going the other way and becoming paranoid and excessive about your doctrinal position. Bible bashing. Instead, I'm going to use a phrase from Francis Schaeffer. He talks about active passivity. Active passivity. Let me, let me show you as we go through <clears throat> what I mean by that. Three methods to be prepared. Number one, we all need a clear understanding of Jesus Christ. This is why we say at Foundation Church we are Christian in faith. <coughs> and as we were thinking a few moments ago, this is nothing new and that's exactly the point. Because unfortunately for us today, particularly in the 21st century, the fact we might say to someone outside the church we're Christian and we go to a church might mean something completely different to what you and I would understand when they hear the word church. Goodness knows what comes up in their minds. So what we're saying is we're Christian in faith. We want a clear understanding of what it is to know Christ. And so to do that, we are rooted in the Bible. That's where our name comes from, Foundation Church. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Everything we do is built upon him. And so we preach the Bible. We get to know the Christ of the Bible. <coughs> and we've seen that today. We, we use from time to time these historic Orthodox um, Christian confessions and creeds and catechisms just to help try and bring some shape and some structure and substance uh, into what we believe and how we, how we talk about that. But we have to get a clear understanding of what it is to know Jesus Christ. And these things, these tools such as creeds and confessions just help us to nail down what we believe. The Bible for us though is authoritative, not creeds or confessions or statements of faith, but the, the, the scriptures. And so as you've hopefully worked out by now, every, every Sunday, we take the scriptures, we read the scriptures, we learn them, we memorize them, we sing them, <clears throat> and we confess them. So number one, we want to get a clear understanding of Jesus Christ as we see him in the scriptures, the whole scriptures, and not just our little favorite bits. <clears throat> the second way we can be prepared against this threat, number two, is by grasping our anointing of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> This is where this whole active passivity thing comes into it. Grasping our anointing of the Holy Spirit. When, when I say grasp, I mean we realise who he is and what we have, what we already have. He is in us as the scripture teaches us. He is abiding within us and he conv convicts us and convinces us. Maybe he's doing that in your heart and mind right now as you hear this stuff. He's teaching us. He's providing us as a church with spiritual gifts. He's cultivating within his people spiritual fruit. 
And yet, he is God. And it says there, he's Lord and, 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 and we worship him, along with the Father and the Son. But we cannot, of course, coerce the Holy Spirit. We cannot force him to operate any more than an ant can command the tides to halt or a grasshopper can lift Everest onto its back. But we are to exercise active passivity. We can pray. We can ask for more of the Holy Spirit. We can cry out to him for a fresh filling of his presence that he would produce in our lives more fruit, that he would go over the hard ground of our hearts and, and instead plant the seed deep that we may produce more fruit. <coughs> we can ask him humbly to give more gifts to his church. That's the active bit, and yet it's the spirit that does it. That's something we wait for. It's the passive bit. Get a clear understanding of Christ. Grasp our anointing of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and thirdly and finally, the third method to prepare ourselves is to embrace the gift of local church membership. <coughs> and as with this entire letter here that we're reading, 1 John, <coughs> it's addressed to the church. It's not addressed to individuals. And John, when he says the Spirit resides in you, Yes, he's talking about people, but he's talking about the church as a whole. The Spirit resides in you as a church. It means more than just a scattering of individuals. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit resides within Foundation Church. Yes, the diversity of expression of that is different from person to person to person, depending on his grace and our faith. But the same core belief in Jesus, who is the Son and he is the Christ, is there and present among us all. Therefore, we as a church are united around our common belief that Jesus is the Son of God. We are bound together in the truth. And that's really the basis of church membership. We, we covenant, we promise to live out the Christian life together, primarily through our local church, this local church. <clears throat> we guard the truth that is taught from the pulpit every Sunday. This is the pulpit, by the way this thing here, from the front. <coughs> it's not primarily down to me. It's primarily down to the members of the church to guard the truth, to help one another, appreciate the word, to seek the spirit. It is down to us to direct seekers to the truth of Jesus. It's down to us to anticipate and use the gifts of the spirit to build one another up. It's down to us to correct and exhort one another, especially when one of us wanders away from the truth. Get a clear understanding of Christ. Grasp our anointing of the Holy Spirit. Embrace the gift of local church membership. And we'll be hopefully walking into that later in the year as we go on as a church. <coughs> If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, these are John's words, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Folks, this is the gift that God holds out to us tonight. Let's grasp it as he fills us with his presence. 
Let's pray. Holy Spirit of truth, we pray that you would speak the gospel word deep into our hearts and our minds. Would you release within us eternal life? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh? Would you show us the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, who is the Christ and the Son, who gave himself for us and for our salvation? We pray that you would teach us, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to live in the light of our place, abiding in you and you in us, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.